Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. Listen each week for updated content and be sure to share with your friends. We hope this podcast is a blessing and a resource to you as you pursue God daily. Amen. Well, we are starting. I get the privilege to kick off this series today. We're calling this series The Summer on the Mount. And this is going to be a dynamic series that you do not want to miss. You're going to be hearing from some of the aces of HPC. You might get a little Pastor Johnny Green up in here, maybe a Pastor Chris Pamilla, maybe even Pastor DW, Pastor David Ray might even get a shot this summer. It's going to be an incredible month as we study the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, we can't teach everything about the sermon. It's so deep, it's so vast. And so what we want to encourage you to do is take this journey with us through our daily devotionals. And so starting tomorrow, we will be having daily devotionals that go through the Sermon on the Mount. So you can access that on our app, all of our online channels, and we want you to be a part of that. But if you're taking notes, I want you to write this word down. This is the title for today's message. It is hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed. Turn to your neighbor and say, you blessed. Turn to that other neighbor you ignore and say, you also blessed. We're going to be talking about the Beatitudes. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have ever heard the word Beatitude before? Okay, a lot of us have heard the Beatitudes. So we're going to be covering the Beatitudes, and this is the start of the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to start off, and then I want to give you some setup. I want to give you some context about what's going on here, because this is going to serve as a setup for the Beatitudes, but it's also going to serve as a setup for the entire Sermon on the Mount series that we are going to be doing. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says this, seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain. Everybody say mountain. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this may seem like just a generic description, but there's a lot more going on here. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. You know why? Because he was on a mountain. Did you catch that? Did you connect those dots? It's called the Sermon on the Mount because he actually was on a mountain. Now, it'd be easy for us to just think of this as a description detail, but this is actually important. Matthew, the writer of this gospel, he is writing to a Jewish audience, and this audience is very, very familiar with what's going on here. When he says Jesus went up on a mountain, this is not by accident, because throughout the entire Bible, mountains are places of revelation. When you look in the the story of the Bible, when you see people going up on mountains, They go up on this mountain, and they meet God on that mountain, and they learn something about God that they did not know before, and they come down that mountain completely changed, completely different. Think about Abraham. Abraham went up on Mount Moriah, and he went to sacrifice his son, and God said, no, I will provide the sacrifice. He learned something about God that day. He learned that God was a provider, that God was Jehovah Jireh. You think about Moses. Moses, he's, he's up on a mountain, and all of a sudden he sees this burning bush, and God speaks to him in that burning bush, and what does he learn that day? He learns the name of God. God says to him, I am that I am. At that same mountain, a few hundred years later, Elijah goes up on that mountain, and he's in distress and turmoil, and God shows him something. He gives him a revelation. He shows him that I don't just speak in big, mighty ways, but I also speak in the still, small voice. Think about the New Testament. Peter, James, and John. 
the three disciples, they go up with Jesus where? Up on a mountain. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they get up there, something unique happens. Jesus transforms into his glorified, deified self. You see, they thought he was a prophet. Maybe he was the Messiah. But that day on the mountain, they learned that he was more than both of those things. He, in fact, was God himself. You see, mountains are all about places of revelation. And you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Why does God constantly do this? Why does God talk to people on mountains in particular? Well, how many of you have ever been on a mountain? Just show your hands. You've been on a mountain. Right there at Denim and Ascension. Y'all been on a mountain before? Now, we ain't got a lot of mountains around here. But if you've ever been on a mountain, you can see things from the top of a mountain that you cannot see from the bottom of a mountain. There is a natural vantage point that you get that you get to look out and you see the world differently. And God is bringing us on a journey. And I believe this series, he's gonna do that. Well, we're gonna see some things differently. You know, I'll never forget the first time I was on a mountain. I was 18 years old, and some of my friends, we decided that we were gonna go snow skiing. And so we drove up to Colorado. We went to a little place called Winter Park, Colorado. And I remember the first day I was on this mountain, I mean, I I had never seen snow before. I mean, it was just incredible to be up there. And we took this little ski school, and I failed at ski school. Um, And so uh, really all ski school is is learning how to break so you don't, you know, break yourself. And so I was on this mountain, and I got lost. And I remember I got to the final slope, and I was on the wrong slope. I mean, there was the base of the mountain, and I knew I had to get down there, and there was only one way down. But it was so steep, and I had no idea how to stop. I had no idea how to get down. And I remember I stood there by myself. I remember this clear as day. I'm standing there, and this little, like, six-year-old girl skis up next to me, and she stops. And she just kind of looks up at me. And I'm like, don't you do it. Don't you go down this mountain. There's no way you'll survive. This is a death trap. And she just looks at me like, what are you doing here, weird man? And she just takes off down the mountain. And she's, and I was like, oh, no. Because I had a choice to make. Am I going to let this six-year-old little girl show me up on the mountain? Am I going to go down this mountain and risk my neck? And the answer was no. So I took my skis off and I walked down the mountain that day. It was a place of revelation. I learned that day that I was not meant to ski. (laughs) And here's the thing. When he says this, hey, Jesus went up on a mountain. I believe Matthew is pointing back to a very specific idea. The, The moment where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. So Moses went up on a mountain and God gave them 10 commandments. And this is the question that they were trying to answer. What does it mean to be a member of God's nation? What does it mean to be a member of God's nation? Now, let me give you a little background history here. So Abraham, God's people started out as a family, just a small family, the family of Abraham. And they grew into tribes. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then as they grew, they ended up in Egypt and they became a nation of slaves. They were in slavery to Egypt for hundreds of years. And so right before the Ten Commandments are given, God supernaturally rescues them. 
and they're making this transition. They're making a transition from being a slave group to a nation. And they had no idea what it meant to be God's nation. What does it mean to be part of God's nation? So God gives them the law and he gives them the 10 commandments and it answers the question, what does it mean to be a member of God's nation? Well, fast forward over the next few hundred years, God begins to tell them that this isn't the final plan, that there's actually another covenant. There's something else coming up in the future, that there is a kingdom that God is going to launch and God is going to send the Messiah. He's going to send the king and he will set up this new kingdom. And so all of this conversation is brewing about this coming kingdom. What does it mean that the kingdom is coming? How do you get into the kingdom? And so this is the question that the Beatitudes answers. What does it mean to be a member of God's kingdom? You know, the word beatitude, it comes from a Latin word, beatus, that means blessed. The Greek word there actually means to be happy, to be in a happy condition. What Jesus is saying when he gives us the beatitudes is that being in the kingdom means being blessed and being happy. That's what it means. Hashtag blessed. How many of you have ever been on social media and you see people post something and they'll just put hashtag blessed on it, right? You know, you'll see somebody post something like this. You know, they went to Chick-fil-A and they gave them an extra order of fries and be like, what? Hashtag blessed. Right, you're standing in line at the Mission Cafe and somebody in front of you buys your coffee, right? That's hashtag blessed. You know what I'm talking about? You caught every green light to church today and you did not miss the first worship song. And you are hashtag blessed. You know, I go to change my son's diaper and it's clean. It's hashtag blessed. The Tigers win the College World Series, hashtag blessed. Come on, somebody. You see, Jesus is gonna define for us what it means to be hashtag blessed. And so for the rest of the time, I'm gonna cover Eight Beatitudes. Oh, now that just made some of you nauseous. <laughs> I got 25 minutes to cover eight Beatitudes, and we go try to get through them. And we go break them up into two groups, the first four and the second four. The first four are telling us how to get into the kingdom. And the second four is telling us how the kingdom changes us, how the kingdom transforms us. So if you're taking note, the first one, kingdom admission. The question is, how do we get into this kingdom? Matthew chapter five, verses two through six. And it says, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So let's take the first one. Jesus says, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. Now, Jesus is using a financial term here. This is interesting because Jesus is gonna do this throughout his ministry. He will talk about our spiritual condition in terms of finances. What does it mean to be poor? It means simply you don't have enough. 
So right off the bat, the very first words of the Sermon on the Mount, the question that they're trying to answer is this. Okay, if you're the king, how do we get in? How do we get into the kingdom? And right off the bat, Jesus says, you can't. You bring nothing to the table. He's saying you want to get in, but you bring nothing. You are actually spiritually poor, and you can't get in by your own means. You know, I'll illustrate it this way. I'll never forget, in 2006, I went on a missions trip to Berlin, Germany, and we stayed with a missionary there, and in summer 2006, something was going on in the world. It was the World Cup. And it was being hosted in Berlin. Now, this was just all accidental. We didn't know that this was even happening until we got there. And the city was going crazy. And it was a really cool opportunity because we got to witness to people from all the nations. They were all there in the city of Berlin for the World Cup. Well, it came to the final match. And me and my buddy Steve were like, we had the day off. Everybody was going to be watching the match. And we thought, let's go. This is like going to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to attend the biggest sporting event in the world. And so we hopped a train. We went over to the stadium. And look, I've been to LSU baseball games. I've been to LSU football games. I've been to Saints games. This was nothing like that. This was the most wild scene I'd ever been a part of. It was chaotic. There were so many people trying to get into the final match, which was Italy versus France. And we were poor college students at the time. And so we went and we started trying to buy tickets and there were a lot of scalpers. And we went from scalper to scalper to scalper and ain't not one of them had a price that we could remotely afford. We realized we were not getting in. We were way too poor. In fact, what we saw was people were going up to these scalpers. They would buy a ticket. Then they would go to the gate, try to turn in the ticket and be turned away because the ticket was a fake. We watched this one guy buy this ticket. He gets denied at the gate. So you know what he did? He turned around and he lifted two fingers up. And he, she sold, he, he literally sold, resold the fake tickets he just bought. And I thought about it like this. There's coming a day when the kingdom of God fully arrives. We are too poor to get in. We may want to get in, but we cannot get in on our own. You know what religion is? Religion is like that fake ticket. Religion says, hey, you know what? I've, I've purchased this. I've done work. I've got some good things. And then you go to the gate and they say, no admission. The first thing Jesus says is we have to recognize that we offer nothing to God. Now, this is what's so beautiful about the gospel because the gospel is both a great encouragement and a huge insult. Because in Jesus' day, there were a lot of people who thought they were spiritually rich. The Pharisees, they thought, oh, well, I, I do good. I do a lot of good. I do way more good than most of the people I know. So surely I'm going to get in the kingdom. Surely I'm going to get admission. And Jesus starts off by saying, you're not. If you think you're spiritually rich, you're not getting in. But it also gives hope to the rest of us who know we don't really offer anything to God. If you're ever talking to somebody and they say, and you ask them the question, hey, do you think you're going to heaven? And they say, yes. And you say, well, why? Why do you think you're going to heaven? And they say, well, I'm a good person. Or 
man, you know, I'm, I'm a generous person. I've done these things. Here are the things. You know, I've never murdered anybody. I've never, I've never you know, cheated on my spouse. I've never done all these horrible things. I've lived a good life. If they say that, they have completely missed the start of the Beatitudes. Because the answer is not that what I've done. The answer is what the king has done. The answer is what Jesus has done. I get in not on my own merit. I get in on the merit of Jesus. Now, I'm not gonna take all the time on the first one. We gotta move on. But Jesus moves on. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is interesting because he's not talking about generic mourning. He's not talking about if you've been at a funeral and you lost somebody and you're, you're mourning that loss. He's not talking about generic mourning. He's talking about something very specific. He's talking about the mourning of our sin. You see, what happens is, is there has to be a recognition that we can't get in. There's an intellectual side to it, that an admission that says, I can't get in on my own. But then there has to be a brokenness over the reason we can't get in. The reason we can't, in is, can't get in is because we are indeed sinful. And Jesus says there has to be a brokenness. Paul would go on to call this godly sorrow. It's when the Holy Spirit speaks to you about your sin and says, this is wrong. This is wrong. You have to leave this behind. You see, what's so interesting is we live in a world that celebrates sin. The church should not be marked by the celebration of sin, but by the mourning of it. We must mourn sin because we realize what? Sin has lost us something. Why does Jesus use the word mourn? Because the word mourn means to lose something and to realize that it's lost. What have we lost? We lost everything. We lost paradise. We lost a relationship with God. We lost the Garden of Eden. We lost a perfect world with perfect bodies. We lost it all. And there has to be a brokenness inside of us. So just right off the bat, getting in the kingdom is this recognition that we offer nothing, but a brokenness that comes over us. You know, a story is told about a, a pastor. His name was G.K. Chester, Chesterton. That's a hard thing to say, okay? The London Times in the early 1900s, they sent out this letter to all these prominent writers and authors, and they said, can you help answer the question, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with what's going on in the world? And this pastor, he got this and he wrote this letter back. And this is what he said. He said, dear sir, I am. I am. Because we have to realize what we have broken. We have to realize the distance that we have created with God. And Jesus goes on to say, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, when you read this, I think the first thing you naturally think, when you think, okay, what does it mean to be meek? You know, I think you kind of think about somebody's demeanor, right? You're like, oh, well, they're just really quiet, and they don't really say a whole lot. And, you know, they always kind of got their kind of head kind of bowed whenever they're talking to you. That's not what this word means. This word meek in the Greek, the, word, the way they used this word was they used it for the taming of wild animals. They would have these wild animals, say like a horse that was just 
just going crazy. And the more that that horse would surrender to its master, the more meek it became. You see, this is a picture of surrender. Jesus is saying this, if you surrender everything, then you'll inherit everything. You see, getting into the kingdom is recognizing you're sinful. It's being broken over your sinfulness, but then it's a point of surrender. You know, we have these altars down here and all the campuses, we have these altar moments where at the end, somebody comes up and I've been on staff here for about 20 years now and I have seen so many people come up just broken over the life that they have destroyed and they've taken that life and they've surrendered it to the Lord. They said, you know what, God, I give you everything. I surrender the control of my life. And you see, Christianity is not, I'm going on my way and Jesus is gonna come help me along that way. Jesus does not do that. To be in the kingdom means to submit to the king. You see, so many times we treat Jesus as our savior, but we don't treat him as our Lord. We don't invite him to make all of the decisions in our life. We don't invite him to, to help us decide. You know, Pastor David earlier was praying about, man, I gotta make some decisions. You know what? Part of Christianity is this act of surrender. And Jesus says, you gotta come in surrendered. You gotta know that you bring nothing and you've gotta be willing to give everything. And the fourth beatitude, he goes on to say, the hungry and thirsty. He says, blessed are the hungry and thirsty for they shall be satisfied. But they're not just generic hungry and thirsty. They're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Now, when we read this word and the way Matthew uses this word is a little different than the apostle Paul and how he uses it. But this word righteousness means to be approved. It means to be accepted by God. You know, I'll never forget me and my now wife on the front row over here. Hey, baby. She's beautiful. Me and Amanda, when we first started talking at church, you know, there was a lot of flirt, flirtiness. You know, there's a lot of flirtation. And after many, many, many months of playing the game, I finally convinced her to go on a date. And I remember we went on this day. We went, down, we went downtown to Capital City Grill. And I remember how nervous I was because the truth is, is that I felt like this was like an audition. I needed to show her not the real me, but the best me. You know what I'm talking about? Because what did I want more than anything? I wanted her to accept me. I wanted her to like me. And I wanted her to go on another date with me. And then after that next date, maybe another date. And then maybe another date. And then eventually we would set a date. Come on, somebody. But what happens is, is the more that I would date her, the more I would realize she accepts me and the more I became the real me. And I became almost a completely real me before we got married. But I wasn't gonna show her all the real me. <laughs> Just enough for her to commit and then we got married. Now she knows the real me. We've been married 15 years, you know, so she knows the real me at this point, right? And you accept me, don't you, baby? You see, what Jesus is saying here is, look, when you realize you offer nothing to God, there's a desire that says, man, I want to be accepted by God. When you realize how broken you are, how sinful you are, and you surrender your life to the king, what's the promise? 
you'll be satisfied. He'll accept you. That's how you get in the kingdom. So let's do a real, a real quick recap of the first four, and then we're gonna finish with the last four. The recap is this. Your good doesn't get you in. Your bad doesn't keep you out. You must surrender control, and you will find full acceptance from God. We talked about how to get in the kingdom. The last four is going to address how the kingdom changes us. Let's talk about kingdom transformation. How does it change me? Matthew chapter five, verses seven through 12, it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he finishes with this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, this is what's so different about Christianity than other religions. You see, other religions say, change yourself so you can get in. Christianity says you can't change yourself, but once you get in, there will be transformation. You change once you're in the kingdom. You don't transform to be in the kingdom. The kingdom transforms you. The king transforms you. Let's go over these four real quickly. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, if you realize that you did nothing, to get in this kingdom, and that God has forgiven you of everything, then what it will do is it will transform your heart, and you will start to treat people around you with the same mercy that God treated you. In fact, Jesus would go on to tell a parable about the unmerciful servant. One of the signs one of the signs, and this is a harsh statement, but this is, I'm just telling you what Jesus said. One of the signs that you may not be in the kingdom, that you may not have been transformed by the king, is that you are unwilling to forgive somebody else. And you hang on to offense. You harbor offense against other people. Because the, what you need to realize is this, is that you will never have to forgive anybody in your life more than what God forgave you. And the longer you've been a Christian, the more you realize how sinful you really are and how sinful you really were. And what happens is you are met with God's mercy every single morning. The mercies of God are new every morning. And as you meet with that mercy, you extend that mercy. You become a conduit of that mercy. The kingdom changes you. It changes how you treat everybody around you. You show people the mercy that's been shown to you. Then he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This word pure it means to be single-minded. It means to be fully focused on God. What happens is this, is when you enter in the kingdom and God accepts you and he brings you in, it changes your heart and your desire. You no longer love sin the way that you used to. You know, I got saved when I was 17 years old and, you know, I was a heathen at East Ascension High School. 
You know, my parents don't know this, but I used to do a lot of drinking and all this stuff. It was crazy partying. I did it behind their back because there's no way they, they would have let me. They're sitting right here. They're like, we wouldn't have let you if we'd known you was doing that. But I remember after I gave my heart to Christ, over my junior year and my senior year, my heart began to change. I began to, I began to feel like, man, this wasn't as fun as it used to be. This didn't feel the same way anymore. How many of you have ever experienced anything like this in your Christianity? It just, sin doesn't taste as sweet as it used to. And the longer you become a Christian, not only does it taste less sweet, it becomes bitter. And you don't enjoy it. And look what Jesus' promise is, is that look, when you walk with the king, when you walk in the kingdom, God changes your heart. And you don't desire sin. And so you begin to focus on Jesus and as you focus on Jesus, the sin in your life goes away and you start to become more pure. And then you know what the reward is? You know more of God. You get to see more of God. How many of you wanna see more of God in your life? The way you see more of God is not by just simply trying harder, but it's focusing on the king in every aspect of your life letting him call out the sin in your life, letting him address the things that you know are contrary to his word. You see, intimacy is the result of purity. Intimacy is the result of purity. You wanna be closer to God? Begin to walk in transformation and purity. The next one, the peacemaker, for they shall be called sons of God. Any of you ever met anybody who uh, you would describe as a fire starter? How about this, maybe somebody in your life that uh, is a gaslighter? You know what I'm talking about? People that are always stirring up stuff, maybe at your office, at your school, in your family. Maybe you're having a barbecue this week with one of those people. Right? People who always just create in drama. If you don't know anybody like that, you might be that person, all right? <laughs> and Jesus said, my people will be marked by their ability to make peace with everyone around them. You see, Jesus, look what he says. He says, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, who is saying this? The son of God is saying this. Jesus is showing us that if you're gonna be like me, you're going to seek peace in every relationship in your life. You're not going to create drama. You're going to be merciful and forgive other people when they hurt you. You're going to be changed in the kingdom. You're going to be marked by peace. Jesus is called in the Bible the prince of peace. So if we are truly in his kingdom, then we must become people of peace. And the last one, I love this one, because Jesus finishes off the Beatitudes with a double blessing. I don't know if you caught that. He finishes with a double blessing. Let me read verses 11 and 12 to you again. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, blessed are you who were persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you who were persecuted when other people revile you and they utter all kinds of evil. You see, I love this because he says it's for righteousness sake. Well, what do we say righteousness is? It's acceptance from God. 
So what is Jesus telling us here? He's saying when you are accepted by God, then you should expect to be rejected by this world. If you are living as a Christian and you never come into any sort of rejection for your Christianity, it may be a good time to reevaluate some things. Because when you are accepted by God, this world will not accept you. This world will reject you. They will reject your message. They will reject your lifestyle. They will reject your gospel. But Jesus said, not only are you blessed, you double blessed. He said, because you're in good company. Look at the history of the Old Testament. The prophets would come. They were anointed by God. They were appointed by God and they would come and be rejected by their people. See, we, we should expect this rejection, but he ends it saying, for theirs is the kingdom. You see, he started the Beatitudes with blessed are the, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. And he's, then he ends it with blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. He bookends the Beatitudes here with what? The kingdom. What is Jesus saying? How do we do this? How do we live this out? You know, Jesus, when he's saying these things, we have to remember something very important. He's not telling us to do something that he hasn't done. He's not telling us to live a way that he has not lived. He is the king, and we are to model our life after the king. I want you to consider each beatitude and how Jesus acted them out and lived them out. You see, he became poor for our sake. He left heaven he came down to earth. He stripped off his deity and became a man. And the Bible says in Philippians, for our sake, he became poor. You think about the king who mourns. The Bible calls him the man of sorrows. You see, our sin broke his heart. And it brought suffering to his soul. You think about the meek, Jesus was completely surrendered to the Father. And everything that he did, he was fully surrendered. Jesus was the righteous one. See, Jesus was the one who was fully accepted by the Father. You know what happens right before this, before Jesus ever even says these words? A couple chapters earlier, Jesus goes to get baptized and the Father announces his acceptance. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He had the full acceptance of the Father. And through him, we can have that same acceptance. Think about blessed are the merciful. As Jesus hung on the cross, you think about the mercy of the cross. And he looked at those who put him there and he said, Father, forgive them. Even when he was under their judgment, he was praying for mercy. You think about the pure. Jesus was the pure, spotless lamb. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus lived a perfectly pure life, never having sinned against the Father. Think about the peace that he made between God and man. You see, we're not all just children of God. In fact, the Bible says 
when we were born in this world, we were his enemies. But Jesus came to make peace, to set up his kingdom, to where God and man would be reunited. Did you think about the double blessing at the end? Blessed are the persecuted. Jesus wasn't just persecuted, he was executed. He didn't just face ugly words or harsh sayings. What did he do? He was nailed to a cross where he bled and he died. You see, the king is saying this through the Beatitudes. Model your life after me. Follow me because I am the king. And if you're going to be a member of the kingdom, your life must look like that of the king. Thank you for listening. Take a moment and subscribe so you can become a part of the community here and stay up to date with what is happening at Healing Place Church. For more information about HPC, visit healingplacechurch.org.